That was good, wasn't it? <laughs> good morning, everyone. It's a, a privilege, it's an honor for me to be here to open up this passage of Scripture with you. Um, so let's read together now John 19, um, from 16b through to 30. So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. And the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this place in John's gospel, a place that you have brought us as your church, we are grateful for everything that has come before. But Father, we feel as though we stand on, on holy ground. A sermon is too small to be able to capture the weight of a passage like this. And our weakness in preaching, in contemplation, is evident, Lord, as we come to this passage. But we pray and ask that you would be among us with your spirit, and that in our hearts there would be praise and adoration and worship for what Jesus has done. Amen. In his now classic work, The Cross of Christ, 
John Stott opens the book, begins the first chapter that's on the centrality of the cross for the Christian faith. He begins with a reference to Holman Hunt's 19th century painting called The Shadow of Death. This painting depicts the inside of the carpenter's shop in Nazareth, where Jesus, stripped to the waist, is standing by a wooden trestle after just laying down his saw. And he's looking out, out the door into the sunset. His eyes are lifted heavenward, and he's stretching from a day's labor, both arms raised above his head. And as he does this, the sunlight streaming into the door casts a shadow, a dark shadow on the wall, behind him in the form of a cross. And there the, the tool rack looks like the horizontal bar on which his hands have been crucified. Tools themselves on that bar remind us of the fateful hammer and nails. In the left foreground there kneels a, a woman with her hands on a chest in which are the, the gifts given by the Magi, Mary, is looking on the wall. She appears startled by her son's cross-like shadow there. Though historically fictitious, Hunt's painting nevertheless is theologically true. From his youth, even from his birth, the cross has cast its shadow over the life of Jesus. For all men, death is a fate that is unavoidable. But for Jesus Christ, it was the reason he was born. Jesus was born to die. Throughout the gospel, John has shared Jesus' consciousness of what is coming, of his purpose. John speaks of it. Jesus speaks of it as the hour. In the beginning of the gospel, it's the hour that has not yet come. But as we get to the end of the gospel, that hour approaches and it is the hour now come. And John carefully reveals how the prophets foresaw this hour in detail after detail. He shares how everything has come to this moment. This is a direct fulfillment of everything that had been spoken about him. And God's purpose in sending his son is all about this moment. He is the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13 tells us He's about to fulfill an eternal purpose. Those who look on on the day do so either in cold mockery or in hopeless anguish. But we look back upon that day and this event with different eyes. The eyes of faith, knowing that it is central to our lives. It is only because of the cross of Jesus Christ that we are gathered. The church exists because of the cross. And it is central to each and every one of our lives, or it ought to be. Now, no gospel records every detail of that day. And we will mostly confine ourselves to what John wants us to see. And as we look at the diverse details that John mentions in the crucifixion narrative, we come with eyes of faith. We want to discover again the truth that shapes our lives. So there are six truths, six truths that I think we should see today from this passage. Number one, the truth of his suffering. 
The truth of his suffering. Look at verses 16b to 18 again. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. And there they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. So the criminal condemned to crucifixion usually would have to bear his own cross, not the entire cross, but the horizontal bar he'd have to carry on his shoulders as he was paraded through the streets on the way to the place of crucifixion. There the upright beam would be waiting, already fastened in the ground. And Jesus starts out in this way, his cross beam on his shoulders. And he makes it as far as the city gates. And we know there that he collapsed, absolutely exhausted, probably because of the the flogging, at least one that he had received at the hands of the Romans, beaten to within an inch of his life. There Simon of Cyrene is drafted to carry the cross the rest of the way. And so on they go down the streets to the place of the skull. We call it Calvary. Calvary is just the Latin word for skull. There Christ is laid on his back. His hands or his wrists are nailed to the crossbeam. He's hoisted up then onto the vertical beam where his feet are nailed. Victims of crucifixion would hang there often for days in weakness and in pain and in suffering. The way that they died would be through asphyxiation when they could no longer push up on their feet and pull with their arms in order to open their chest cavity and breathe. Often there would be a a piece of wood that would be wedged into the cross, sort of like a, a seat or a step meant to support, partially support the weight. This wasn't Roman mercy. It was intended to increase and prolong the torture, encouraging the victim to fight on, to fight for life. But isn't it amazing that John doesn't share all of these details? He simply says, there they crucified him. So matter of fact. Of course, in in the first century, what need is there to share the details of this kind of execution? They were familiar with it. They knew the horrors of the cross. It was loathsome to their sensibilities. But John does focus on other details, as do the the other gospel writers. And what we learn in this, we know to be true from all of Scripture, that the physical suffering of the cross was not the only suffering, was it? In fact, for Christ, it wasn't even the worst. There was worse suffering. For one, there is the disgrace of the cross. And I don't mean the the usual disgrace for a criminal killed on the cross. There was shame for anybody who died that kind of death. But if you ask the criminal to the right and the criminal to the left, which was worse, the shame or the physical pain, they would tell you the physical pain is worse. But they died for the sins that they had committed. Christ suffered under the weight of sin and the weight of a guilt that was not his own. All four Gospels mention this detail. The criminals who were crucified with Jesus. The innocent was killed with the wicked. 
Isaiah 53 verse 12 had prophesied, He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. We know from the other accounts that both of these criminals began to hurl abuse upon him and revile him. And yet even in those moments there is still we see the grace and evident love of Jesus in that one of those men slowly begins to see him differently. And his eyes are opened even while he's on the cross. And in faith he cries out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How incredible a statement. They are both nailed to the tree, nailed to a cross, and yet it's as if he alone can recognize the truth of Christ's words earlier spoken to Pilate, my kingdom is not from this world. And Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. How amazing is that? How amazing is his grace? This man has lived a bad life. Even on the cross, he's heaped abuse upon Jesus Christ, the Son of God. There's no time for reparations. There's no time for good works. There's no time even for baptism. Only time for a repentance and a faith that sees Jesus clearly for the first time. Today you will be with me in paradise. The criminals were crucified for their sins. Christ was crucified though without it. But one of those criminals would spend forever with Jesus, righteous in the sight of God because of the suffering of Christ. He bore that man's sin upon himself. He bore the greater punishment and the greater judgment upon himself. This is the truth of his suffering. 1 Peter 2.24 says he bore, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Is this true of you today? Have you been healed by the wounds of Jesus Christ if so, you know that as you stand before God, you do not stand before Him, avoiding judgment by the way that you avoid sin or by your own obedience, but you know rather with all your heart that on this day Jesus bore your own sin upon that tree, that He bore your judgment so that now you are free. You're free in Him and your life has been purchased therefore by His blood to righteousness. You know that the power of the Christian life is not in, I must obey, I must do better, I must try hard, I must stop sinning so that I can be justified, so that I can stand without condemnation. Rather, you know the power of the Christian walk is in the verdict of justification that you have in Christ. As he says, neither do I condemn you, now go and sin no more. That's the power of the gospel. We sang, it's the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Is that where you stand today? Number two, we see the truth of his enthronement. The truth of his enthronement in verses 19 to 22. It was custom that the crime 
of the one going to the cross would be written on a tablet or on a placard and hung around the criminal's neck as he walked through the streets to the place of crucifixion or, or carried before him and then fastened that inscription to the cross. And so in verse 19, we see Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It was written in three languages, Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. Wherever you came from the world, whatever language you spoke, if you knew how to read, you could read this inscription as you're here in Jerusalem for the Passover. And so the chief priests protest, don't say the king of the Jews, rather say that he said, I am the king of the Jews. By now Pilate has had enough with them and he says, what I have written, I have written. Cornered he had been into pronouncing verdict on an innocent man. And so he has one last insult towards the Jews, one last revenge. He's mocking them in their charge of sedition. They're hiding behind a supposed allegiance to Rome. Pilate mocks them by insisting that this wretched victim is the closest thing that they will ever have to a king. But again, Pilate speaks better than he knows. Every time this man opens his mouth to mock Every time his unwitting malice only serves God's end. And Pilate, in a way, actually becomes the first preacher to the world of the kingship of Jesus. Because he is the king of the Jews. The cross is his means of exaltation. Pilate is mocking and Jesus is turning this obscene instrument of torture into the very throne of glory. He's reigning even as he is lifted up. And there is sovereign victory over mockery. It's seen throughout the history of the world, the history of the church, and the praise of sinful but saved subjects of this king. We sang it this morning. Now see the king who wears a crown, one made of shame and splinters. The sacrifice for ruined man, the substitute for sinners. As earth is stained with royal blood and quakes with love and fury, he breathes his last and bows his head. The king, we sang in all his beauty. How worthy. How worthy the king in all his beauty. He died the king of the Jews. He died the savior of the world. And he will return. The king will return. And so the most important question today is this. Is he your king? Is he your king? Is he your savior? It is the cross that lays claim to all of our lives. To be a Christian is to say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Is this true of you? Number three, we see the truth of his disrobing. The truth of his disrobing. There was another custom that the, the executioners at the cross could lay claim to the possessions of the victim. In this case, it's a squad of four soldiers and they divided his garments among them. Perhaps his sandals and his turban, his, his cloak and his belt. But he had a, a tunic, an inner tunic that was seamless, more valuable, certainly if left whole. 
So instead of tearing it into four parts, they gamble for it in verse 24. This was to fulfill Scripture, it says. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This was fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 18. Now these Roman soldiers had no clue what they were doing. They had no clue that in their calloused, indifferent action, gambling for this man's clothes while he looks on dying, that even in this moment God is in control and prophecy is being fulfilled. In Psalm 22, David speaks of physical distress. He speaks of mockery at the hands of his opponents. And he does so, he seems to to do it in this presentation of an execution scene. He elaborates on the depths of his sense of abandonment. And Psalm 22, we know, has final reference to Christ. Christ claimed it upon himself. It's a truth that he draws attention to. What does he cry? In his moment of greatest pain and suffering, he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In these moments, Christ's opponents are absolutely blind to his atoning work as our world is blind. Our world is blind to it, even offended, even many churches. Deny the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. They call it cosmic child abuse. The idea, the idea that God's justice would require that wrath be poured out upon the Son of God. But the truth of Scripture is this. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ is the only hope that we have. A sin-defiled people. It's the only hope that we have of being reconciled to a holy God. And we see in the cross the loving intention of our Trinitarian God from before the foundation of the world. While the soldiers gamble callously for his things, there's a careless disregard. The other Gospels tell us that in these moments, the chief priests have a mockery of their own. The religious leaders watch on and they say, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down and then we will believe in him. They claim the proof that he is not Messiah is his hopelessness now to rescue himself. But his agony amidst their scorn is the proof of the exact opposite. His very means of saving and rescuing us is the fact that he stayed on the cross. My children's Jesus storybook Bible puts it this way. It wasn't the nails that kept Jesus there. It was love. He didn't avoid this fate. He didn't come down from the cross. Rather, he disrobed himself. He disrobed himself of that which was due to him by nature as God. As Paul says to the Philippians, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God to be grasped, to be laid hold of, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The night before this, this day, this afternoon, we saw Christ take off his outer garments and kneel down and wash his disciples' feet. And when Jesus is explaining this work to the disciples, 
he says that this anticipates a cleansing. It anticipates a cleansing that would issue from his death. And so now on the cross, what we see is his humility. He disrobes in service as he lays aside, the Son of God lays aside his very life for you and for me. Great is the offense of pride that would dismiss this Christ, that would dismiss his sacrifice as meaningless or pointless to my life. Number four, the truth of his care. In contrast with the four soldiers who couldn't be bothered about him, there are four women there who care very deeply about him and they remain near even when all hope seems lost and all they can do is look upon him in anguish of heart. Verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. I shudder when I even begin to imagine what that must have been like for them, for Mary to look upon her son nailed to the cross. When she had taken him as a baby to the temple for dedication, Simeon had prophesied in Luke 2, 34 to 35. He had said, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And a sword, he said to Mary, will pierce your own soul too. But even in his darkest hour and in his greatest suffering, even then he takes care of his mother. He sees his mother there in the crowd. And when every breath is pure agony, still he summons the breath to care for her. Verse 26, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that's John standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. He will not leave his widowed mother without care, even when he is suffering. He's taking care of her needs. The anguish of Mary at the agony of her son is met by the compassion of the Savior. And in this passage, we see a deeper truth. This is not the first time that we see Jesus address Mary in the Gospel of John using the word woman. He did it in John 2 as well. He says to a woman, he's not being disrespectful here, but there is a truth here that their special earthly relationship must yield to something else, to a higher relationship as he would become her savior, her anguish, must and will turn to adoration. And so greater even than the care that we see of a, a son for his mother is the, the care and the love that we see, a savior for the sinner. This selfless love of Jesus Christ, again, that we sang about this morning, it is the bedrock of our lives. It is the bedrock of our faith. We know it as a love that will never leave us and fail us. And his care will never abandon us. And so through selfless love, aren't we freed? We are freed to love selflessly ourselves, or to love others, I mean. 
Number five, the truth of his thirst. In verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, in order to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. The scripture most likely fulfilled here is Psalm 69 verse 21. For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And it's not to be confused here with the wine that was mixed with myrrh that was offered to Jesus on the way to the cross. That was a sedative that was designed to dull the agony and it's what Jesus refused to drink. D.A. Carson says instead he was fully resolved to drink the cup of suffering the Father had assigned to him. He would not dull the pain. He would experience it all in full. He drinks now to fulfill Scripture, perhaps to wet a parched tongue in order to get out a cry, a cry still coming, the shout of victory. But for now, what we see is the thirst of our Savior. It speaks of His Humanity, does it not? Fully God and fully man. He is upon the cross. He was fully man for you and me. When we go through pain and we go through anguish and soul, there's often a thought that, that comes to our minds and our hearts. It's, it's often a thought that I have, and it's I'm so alone. I'm so alone. The thirst of Christ speaks a truth over that lie into the lives of the children of God. For the one thing that we never are is alone. He is able, the scripture says, to sympathize with our weakness. He embraced it completely on our behalf. He was alone in his suffering that we would never have to be. He was forsaken so that Every day in the life of the child of God, the promise will apply. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. No one understands what you are going through like Jesus does. And no one is closer than he is. Why? Why as the children of God, and I speak to myself, do we battle so often to trust him for our future? Let us look and see him there. Finally, number six, we see the truth of his death. The truth of his death. When the gospel writers speak of Christ fulfilling scripture, every time they use a specific word, and that word means just that. It means to fulfill. John uses this word throughout his gospel every time except in verse 28. In verse 28, he uses a different word, a word that means to complete, to finish. He's fulfilling completely. He's finished. He's portrayed the, the total biblical prophetic picture. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. It's the very word that Christ uses himself, the cry that he has from the cross. In verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, Tetelestai, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. This is not just a, a cry. It's not just the one who knows who, that, that death is approaching. 
When he says it is finished, it is the cry of one who knows he has fulfilled the mission that is given to him. This is a cry of victory, not a cry of defeat. Jesus is saying, I've accomplished the purpose for which I came. This word was used in the economic sphere as well. When an account in the marketplace had been paid off, that word tetelestai was written on it. Paid in full is what it meant. Throughout the Old Testament, the sacrifices of the lamb and the bull and the goat was made over and over and over again because the work was never finished. Hebrews 10 verse 4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But Jesus Christ is the perfect Lamb of God. The sacrifice that He made was made once for all, perfect before the Father. He accomplished once for all our redemption through His death on the cross. He paid in full our debt. There is nothing more to add. There is no sacrifice to offer. Nothing else to offer to be made right with God. He has done it all. And are there any more words, therefore, more precious than these words that Jesus cried on the cross, It is finished. It is finished today. And yet, because of our pride, these are some of the most difficult words to accept. We live in a world that is lost in self-righteousness and dominated by self-rule. We're a people blinded by pride. And so if you look at every religion, look at every religion, how does it work? Every religion except Christianity. It's, it's I make myself right by my own deeds, by what I do. In this way, I'll be right before God. I'll be allowed into heaven. I'm a, a generally decent person. Shere and I were watching a, a show this week where this same, this common idea of heaven was presented, but it was actually presented in kind of a comical way. This woman dies and she finds herself in heaven in the, the good place where she learns that the, the system uh, that, that you go through in order to get there is a weighing up of deeds, a weighing up of your works. Every single thing you did in life got a score either positive or negative, and if you achieved a certain score, then you'd be in heaven. That's, when you talk about it that way, it's, it's laughable, isn't it? It's laughable that the, the, the system is dependent on, on me, on what I deem to be right. And yet that is how we approach God in self-righteousness. It's crazy. Christianity is summed up with the realization of the seriousness of sin and the necessity of a Savior. It's summed up in John Newton's great confession. Is this true in your heart today? Two things I know. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Please hear me. Please. If you believe that you can atone for your sin, if you believe that you will be let into heaven, because you're a decent person. You've been compassionate and generous. You've generally tried to love everyone. Hear me now. The truth is that you do not understand the holiness of God. You don't understand the gospel. 
and you don't understand the cross of Jesus. But if you are a child of God, you are so because you trust in your heart. You know that your sin has been paid for in full by the blood of Jesus Christ and by his blood alone. You know that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know whom the Son sets free is free indeed. There's nothing now to add. There's no debt left to pay. And you know that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Holman Hunt's painting, The Shadow of Death, that shadow that hangs over Christ even from his youth, we see now in his death on the cross when he cries, it is finished, it is a cry of victory. And we see the truth that it was not death that hunted Jesus, but Jesus who hunted death. And he says, John says, he handed over his spirit finally. Chapter 10, Jesus had said, No one takes my life, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Why did Jesus die? What caused the death of Jesus Christ? Was it Judas' greed? Pilate's fear? Was it the envy of the Jews? Or the calloused duty of the soldiers? Or was this the courageous and predetermined obedience of the Son and the eternal love of a holy Trinitarian God? It's the love of God that caused the death of Jesus Christ. And it's that love that today is all of our hope. It is all of our peace. If you stand before God... If you stand before him righteous, it is not because of what you've done. It's because of what Jesus has done for you. And so, are you weak and lowly? Are you beset with temptation and with struggle? Welcome. Welcome to the club. Welcome to the church of Jesus Christ. We are the ones who are dependent upon him. We are the ones who look to him for life. And know that we stand reconciled with a Holy Father because of what Jesus Christ has done. We're going to stand now and we're going to sing of that dependence. We're going to sing a song. The words of this hymn are some of my favorite words written in any hymn. And when before the throne I stand in Him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Is that true of you? Let's pray. God, we, we know that you are a holy God. And we know that the life that we have in Jesus Christ is not a life that we have earned. It's not a life that we deserve. The eternity that we look forward to of, of spending forever with Him is not something that we earn. It's not something that we deserve. It is a gift of Your grace. It is given because and made possible by the cross of Jesus Christ. And so the cross controls our lives. It is central to our lives. I pray, Father, that more and more it would become central to us, that we know we have died with him, crucified with Christ, 
that we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. We thank you, Jesus, for that union. We thank you for the life that you've given us, the abundant life that we have, the forgiveness that we have, only through your blood. Amen.